The thing that makes Second Kings difficult to sort of shoehorn into uh, small, compact themes is, is that it, it moves very rapidly from one king to the next. There's no central figure in First King or in Second Kings, rather. In First Samuel, it's Samuel and it's Saul and David at the end. In Second Samuel, it's primarily David. Even in First Kings, Solomon is is the major focus and the division of the northern and southern kingdoms. But we're moving very quickly uh, through a, a number of kings and their service in Second Kings. There are really two monumental events that happen in the history of Israel as a nation in the book of 2 Kings that, that are, if anything, the focal point of the book itself. The first of those is the fall of Israel. Remember we talked uh, last Wednesday night about the division of the two kingdoms, and I, I still think there are people who struggle with this in reading their Bible. I, I struggled with this forever when I began reading the Bible as a new believer what is Israel and Judah, and how are those different from one another? They're all the Jewish people. They're all God's chosen people. So how do you know the difference? And uh, last week we noted that, that there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 10 who, rem- who are in the northern part of the land of Israel. They are known as the nation of Israel. And then there are two, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. And, uh, and, and that, that group of two tribes is simply known as, as Judah. So the easy way to remember that, as we said last week, you've got the bad people in the north, and the good people in the south. Y'all remember that? You'll never forget it now. The good ones are in the south, and the bad ones are all in the north. So in the first part of 2 Kings, you have 19 kings who serve consecutively in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and they're all evil kings. There's not a single king in the nation of Israel's history that is recognized by 1 or 2 Kings as a good king. They're all bad. And, And they're bad Uh, by virtue of where they are. They don't have access to the city of Jerusalem, the only authorized place for temple worship. So they begin to establish for themselves satellite temples. They begin to worship in different places, which makes them vulnerable to the worship of other gods. And so in 722, here's a date in history for you, the nation of Israel falls to the Assyrian Empire, and much of Israel is carried away what remains of Israel is, is left there, um, but is sort of surrounded by um, the planning of neighboring nations. It was the practice of the Assyrian Empire when they attacked or overtook a nation that they would displace its citizenship. So they would remove some members of that country and place them in other areas, and their presence in other areas would dilute that culture, and at the same time the removal of members of that culture would further dilute that culture so that they would essentially breed out or supplant an entire culture. The product of those relationships established between those planted there and what remained of Israel are the Samaritan people that show up in the Gospel accounts Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman in John 4 at the well, a woman who is despised and an outcast, not just for the things that she's done in her life, and there were a great many mistakes, but also because of her ethnic background, there was friction, there was tension between the Samaritans and the people of Israel, the Jews, um, which primarily were coming out of what, what was the southern kingdom later. So in 722, the northern kingdom falls. Shortly thereafter, in 586, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, falls as well. Prophet after prophet encourages Judah to look at the example of Israel. Learn your lesson from your brothers in the north. They didn't act right, and God took them out. 
Now, if you don't get your act together, God is going to take you out. And there were brief hints at some spiritual revival in Judah, but they continued the wayward way, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sent in his armies, and in 587, 58 to Babylon. That's sort of the history of this period of the Old Testament. That gets you from David to the close of the Old Testament. Now, there's a return that happens shortly thereafter, but in general, this is the history of the period of the kings. Things get progressively worse. The people are carried away into exile, and eventually God affords that they could come back to the nation of Israel. Now, this all connects back with, it's been some time now, but this all connects back with what I told you was at the heart of the Old Testament. Do you remember when we looked at the book of Deuteronomy? specifically at Deuteronomy 28, and God says, if you obey, I'm going to bless you, but if you disobey, I'm going to curse you. What, what was the maximum penalty for their disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 28? It was their exile from the land. Remember back in the Ten Commandments when God said, honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land? That, that was not the old Bill Cosby line where I brought you into this world, I will take you out. That was, if you want to remain in this land, on the promised land that God has given you, you need to honor your mother and father. I, I, think, I think there's something heavily implied in that verse that the structure of the family, the nuclear family, is critically important to the, to the religious or the spiritual strength of a society. And in the case of Israel, in the promised land, that the spiritual strength of that society was their covenant commitment to God. So we run through the remainder of the period of the kings in 2 Kings, which culminates in both Israel and Judah being exiled from the land. Now, I have identified nine key events, nine significant events in the book of 2 Kings in the outline that's before you tonight. We'll move through them as quickly as we can, and we may have to do some skipping along the way. But I want you to look first to 2 Kings chapter number 1. When we begin 2 Kings, we begin by looking at the leadership of a man named Ahaziah. The name Ahaziah is probably not one that you're very familiar with, but you might know his daddy. He is the son of Ahab, who was the worst of all of Israel's kings. Ahab was as bad as it got. Every, every effort of Ahab was bent on evil. He was wicked. And even if you don't know Ahab as a king of Israel, as an evil man, you know the name of his wife, Jezebel. You probably won't meet any children in our children's ministry named Jezebel. I've met people with all sorts of names, but I've never met anyone with the name Jezebel. It's not common, and for good reason. Jezebel was just as wicked as was Ahab. In fact, she may have been worse than Ahab. She was often uh, the person who provoked Ahab to do the dreadful things that he did. Ahab is now dead, but much of his family remains. His son Ahaziah specifically is reigning here in verse number 1. The Bible says after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing him, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You'll not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. And Elijah left. Now, 
when Ahaziah gets the report of what Elijah, Elijah has said, he inquires about who this man was who made this declaration, and they come back and they describe Elijah in this way in verse 8. He is a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. I said to you, I think this was last week or so, in the past few weeks anyway, we looked at a passage that described John the Baptist. My preaching opportunities are running into one another. That may not have been you at all. But, but when, Eli- when John the Baptist is described the way he is in the New Testament, it's a, it's a direct note. It, it's a signal for us to connect the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist up with the prophetic ministry of Elijah. They were dressed the same. They preached the same. Their source of power and authority was the same. When they spoke, they always began, thus saith the Lord. The hairy man Elijah, with a leather belt around his waist, had made a proclamation against Ahaziah, you will not get up from your sickbed, you will die. So Ahaziah sends 50 men and their captain after Elijah, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and all 50 are killed. So Ahaziah sends 50 more men and their captain after Elijah, and uh, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and 50 more are killed. And then uh, Ahaziah sends 50 more men after Elijah, and the captain gets there and says, time out. I know about the hundred who came before me. If you could spare my life, that'd be very generous. And eventually the message gets back to Ahaziah, and just as Elijah said it would be, he died on his sickbed without ever getting over his accident falling through the lattice of his window. Now that seems insignificant, and in the grand scheme of uh, the kings, Ahaziah is not an outstanding king, but his example here provides us with a pattern for the kings of Israel that come after. Now I want you to note, perhaps not tonight in the reading that we'll enjoy together, but in your own readings of both First and Second Kings, the problem with Israel's kings, for the most part, is not that they completely supplanted the God of Israel, but that they were willing to supplement the God of Israel. It was not that Ahaziah was completely devoted to Baalzebub of Ekron. It was that, that he was divided in his religious loyalties between Baalzebub and the God of Israel. Are you all with me? This is, this is the way heresy runs. This is the way divided allegiance happens. This is the way we find ourselves feeling good about our religion while being at odds with the God of heaven. We modify God's character. We modify God's word. We modify our understanding of God's great power and supplement that with the gods or the things of this world. We take our own self-styled idolatry and we marry it up with the God of the Bible and believe ourselves to have done something quite noble when in fact we have done violence to the character and the absolute righteousness of God who is in heaven. This is what every king in the history of Israel does. This was Ahab's issue. This was his problem. Not that he completely dismissed the worship of the God of Israel, but that he put the God of Israel alongside other gods that he believed to serve his interest. Chapters 2 through 7 focus on the ministry of of the prophet Elijah. Well, really, it focuses on the transition between the prophet Elijah and his successor, Elisha, one with a J and one with an S-H. This is where the, the phrase taking up the mantle derives from. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah and Elisha are walking along and Elisha senses that something is coming, a change, a transition is coming. 
And indeed it did. In fact, it came with great pomp and circumstance. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. As Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Then he never saw Elijah again. He took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. And Elisha picked up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Now, mantle is just a cloak, but that language has become symbolic for taking up the cause or the purpose of someone who's come before us. Elisha, quite literally, took up the mantle of Elijah, the prophet. Now, in the verses leading up to those we just read, Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. He wanted to continue in the same power Elijah enjoyed the prophetic ministry of Elijah, and certainly God afforded him that opportunity. There are a number of outstanding miracles that are worked by the hand of Elisha. Much of chapters 2 through 6 are about validating the power and the authority of Elisha as he operated under the Spirit of God. There are some men who come to him at the city of Jericho and they have a problem with the water in their city. Their water is bad. And Elisha heals the water of that city. In what is quickly becoming one of my favorite passages from the life of Elisha, in chapter 2 and verse 23, verses 23 through 25, there are 42 boys who make fun of Elisha because he's bald. And they say, hey baldy, hey baldy. And bears come out of the woods and devour those children. You should never make fun of a preacher with no hair. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. In chapter 3, there are further miracles that are worked. He prophesies against the nation of, of Moab. Later, there's an instance of stew having gone bad, and Elisha works miraculously, and the stew is made well. They throw in some meal to the pot, and they're able to serve it to the people, and there's nothing bad in this pot of stew. In chapter 4, verses 42 and following, 42 through 44, there's a situation here that I'll bet, um, if I were a betting man, I'd bet, that you've never considered when reading the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. In verse 42, the Bible says, A man from Baal, Shalashah, came to the man of God with his sack full of 20 loaves of barley bread from the first bread of the harvest. And Elisha said, Give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant asked, What am I to set 20 loaves before a 100 men? And Elisha said, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, They will eat, and they will have some left over. So he gave it to them, and as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. I, what I'll suggest to you is that when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and surplus when the meal is done, it's also a note in the hearts and minds of all those gathered on the plains that one greater than Elisha has come before us. Jesus comes not only to be the king we have always needed, but the prophet that we've always needed. Our prophet, our priest, and our king bound up in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He heals Naaman of his skin disease, of his leprosy, directs him to the Jordan to go there, a Syrian, 
to go to the Jordan and to wash seven times and be healed of his skin disease. Naaman is initially angry that he didn't send him to one of the waters in the nation of Syria, but eventually gets over his frustration, goes and dips himself in the Jordan and is completely healed of his leprosy. In chapter 6, he raises an axe head from the water, which has always seemed to me sort of a strange miracle, but again, an attestation of the power that he enjoyed. In those days, if you lost an axe head in the water, it was something of value that needed to be retrieved. He does that miraculously. Nowadays, if you lose an axe head in the water, you just leave it there. But in Elisha's days, apparently this was a miracle of some note. There's even an instance of Elisha stretching himself out across the Shunammite's dead son, breathing life into his now cold body. His body, his life was raised from the dead. Elisha is a, power, a prophet who ministers with great, great power. In chapter 6, there's a transition. The focus shifts from Elijah's prophetic ministry to what's happening historically within the nation of Israel. And it's really my favorite story in, in the book of, of 2 Kings. At the, at the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 6, Elijah or Elisha and one of his servants are surrounded. The uh, Aramean army has come against Elisha. They've come to get him. And his servant is scared. He looks out and, and there are all of these soldiers. And Elisha prays and asks that God would give the servant sight. And what the servant sees is that the angel of God has surrounded the army that has surrounded them. They have Elisha surrounded, and Elisha says, we've got them right where we want them. They're, they're relieved from this threat for the moment, but the Arameans come back. And when the Arameans come back, they lay, they lay seas to the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel in the north. In verse 24, the Bible says, I'm in chapter 6, verse 24. Sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram brought all his military units together and marched up to besiege Samaria. So there was a great famine in Samaria, and they continued the siege against it until a donkey's head sold for 80 silver shekels and a cup of dove's dung sold for five shekels. Now, I'm not entirely sure of the, of the typical value for a donkey's head, nor am I aware of a reasonable market value for a cup of dove's dung. But what I do know is that ordinarily it's much less costly than it is under the conditions of this uh, famine. So basically, prices for groceries and meal preparation has gone astronomical. The people are starving within the city. And it would be difficult to overstate the severity of this famine. Continue reading in verse 26. The Bible says, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, My Lord, the king, help. And he answered, If the Lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor or the wine press? The king asked her, What's the matter? In other words, the king responds sarcastically and says, if, if God can't help you, why would you think that I could help you? There's nothing at the threshing floor. There's nothing at the wine press. There is no food. We are here famished. There, there's nothing that I can offer you. When he asked what her problem was, she said to him, now listen to this. She said, this woman said to me, give up your son and we will eat him today. Then we'll eat my son tomorrow. 
So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, Give up your son and we'll eat him. But she has hidden her son. And when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his clothes. And as he was passing by on the wall, the people saw that there was sackcloth under his clothes next to his skin. And he announced, May God punish me and do so severely if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So this is bad. In fact, this is inconceivably bad, right? I, I heard you gasp when we read those verses. It's always a troubling thing. It feels weird to even read what is said in, in these verses. And the king of Israel does what sinful men are always inclined to do. He blames God. And, and the place where he'll take out his anger against God is on the head of Elisha the Tishbite. He says the sun will not set before Elisha has paid for this. God's man will pay for what we find to be the problem with Elisha. Not the son of Tishbat, but the son of Shaphat. So in verse 32, the Bible says Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger got there, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messengers come, shut the door to keep him out isn't the sound of his master's feet behind him. When Elisha was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him, and he said, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, at the gate of Samaria, six quarts of fine meal will sell for a shekel, and twelve quarts of barley will sell for a shekel. In other words, tomorrow you're going to buy groceries at a discount rate. You couldn't buy a donkey's head today. But tomorrow you'll be able to buy more food than you could ever think or imagine with a small, meager sum of money. In verse 2, the Bible says the captain, the king's right-hand man, responded to the man of God. And he said, look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? And Elijah announced, you will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Now, something rather unexpected begins to happen in the next several verses. This is my favorite part. There are four leprous men who are sitting outside the gate of the city of Samaria. Now, they have to be outside the city because they have leprosy. But they're tucked closely to the wall. Because, again, the Aramean army is, is in those inside the wall, given that they themselves have leprosy. And they look around at one another, and they say among themselves, why are we sitting here until we die? If we stay here, we're going to starve to death. If we go out there, they're going to kill us. Let's throw caution to the wind, and let's run out there and see if we can beg bread from the Aramean army. I, I, I think sometimes kingdom work gets to be this way a little bit. If we, if, we just, if we just sit here, we will die. If, if we just remain as we are, where we are, we, we will die. We will die. If, if we just stay where we are, Longview Point will die as a congregation. We'll, we'll just dry up and, and we will die. There's danger. No matter what we do, there are always challenges. You go inside, you starve to death. You go out there, they might kill you. But let's go out with some gusto. Let's go out in a blaze of glory. And these four leprous men get up and they run out there to the camp. Now what they don't know is that in the night, God has brought confusion into the camp of the Aramean army. And they believe themselves to be under attack. 
And they turn swords against one another, and eventually they just run off into the distance. They abandon their camp. Now, they've brought with them portions that were adequate to see them through the seizing of this city. When you seize a city, you come and you set up outside the city, and you cut off its water and food supply, and you just starve them out. You don't bother with going in and involving yourself in battle. It's too risky, and it's unnecessary. You just sit outside and you wait. So when you, when you come to take this approach militarily, you bring lots of food with you. You bring groceries. You bring enough water to last you a long time. So they get out there, and there's just food and animals and stuff everywhere. And for a few moments, they just begin to sort of gorge themselves. They eat everything that's in sight. And, and they have this epiphany. They look around at one another, and they say, you know, this is not right. We're full now. We should probably go back and make the people of the city aware that this great buffet awaits them just out beyond the distance. And they go back, and at first the people don't believe, but eventually they prevail. They convince them that the food is out there, and the, and the city rushes to the gate of the city, and they run out to that place where the food was waiting for them. And guess what? On that day, there were discount groceries in the city of Samaria by the hand of God. But you know what happens in the end? There's a, there's a moral to this whole unfolding of the story. You remember when Elijah, Elisha said, you're going to get discount groceries tomorrow? There was a captain there who was a skeptic, and he said, even if God were to throw open the windows of heaven, this thing could never be. And Elisha said, it's going to be, and you're going to see it, but you won't eat the discount groceries. And when the people of Samaria rushed to the gate and out toward the Aramean camp, that captain was holding the door. And the Bible says in the closing verses of chapter 7 that as they rushed out, they trampled him overfoot, and he died there. It is a dangerous and foolish thing to doubt the power of our God. It's a very compelling account of God's power. Now, there's some lessons to be learned in general from all of 2 Kings. Notably, that God, in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people, perseveres with them. I know, I know we like to think, and there's a, a, a level of truth to the idea, that, that God is faithful to us as we are faithful to him. And there's no question about the fact that there is a measure of blessing reserved for our faithfulness to God. When we are laboring, striving to be brought near to God, there's a nearness there that's just precious. But at the same time, it's also true for the people of God that even in our faithlessness, God is faithful. You know that Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, when we are faithless, he is faithful. They were inside the city and, and there was anger against God and there was uh, the foolish skepticism that God could do what he promised he'd do. All the while, God was working powerfully, setting the stage for one of his great miracles that his people would be provided for and that his power and his glory would be made known. There is at the same time, as we celebrate the faithfulness of God, a seriousness about God's concern for sin. The wrath of God is clearly poured out against the people. They suffered this hardship. But in the end, it was God who was their rescue. The next significant event, there, there are several here, and we'll never get to all of them, is the anointing of Jehu and the eradication of Ahab's home or house. After the death of Ahab, after the death of Ahaziah, there was much of Ahab's house that remained, and there's a changing of guard that happens at a number of different places. But there's a man named Jehu who's going to be uh, the next king in Israel's history. If, if, you're, if you're inclined toward historical facts, 
there are two great dynasties in Israel as a nation. There's the Ahab or Omri dynasty that begins with Omri and Ahab and Ahaziah and down through uh, their lineage. And then there's the Jehud dynasty, J-E-H-U-I-D-E. It's kind of a funny term, but Jehu is the father of that, of that dynasty. And God says, Elisha, anoint Jehu to be the new king of Israel and appoint him to eradicate the family of Ahab. Go kill all of the descendants of Ahab. And uh, one of those he was assigned to kill was Jezebel. She dies in a very gruesome way. We'll never get to all the details of the story of Ahab and Jezebel and their death and the seizure of Naboth's vineyard. But I, I, go online and, and find an old audio of the R.G. Lee sermon, Payday Someday, and listen to R.G. Lee's telling of the story of Ahab and, and Jezebel and their interaction with Elijah and Elisha. No one tells it like R.G. Lee tells it, and, and it's, it's just winsome and compelling, and, and it'll help you to set in your memory this narrative of what God is doing through the prophets and in the lives of those involved in this particular account. Now, I want you to see something in what Jehu does in chapter 10. I think there's a good principle to be uh, discussed here. Jehu was told, go and, and kill the family of, of Ahab, and you're going, to, you're going to be the next king in, in Israel. Now, he has an interaction here in chapter 10 with someone um, named Jehonadab, who's going to, who's going to come, be involved in Jehu's reign. And he's basically going, if you read through, he, every person he meets, he asks them if they're for or against him. If they're against, he kills them. If they're with him or for him, he sort of takes them into his uh, band of, of followers and disciples. But here in this back and forth with Jehonadab, I want you to see what's said in verses 16 and 17. He says to Jehonadab, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he let him ride with him in his chariot. And when Jehu came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained from the house of Ahab in Samaria until he had annihilated his house according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Now, if you continue reading through the life of Jehu, in the end, Jehu is held accountable for his bloodthirst and the things that he does in pursuit of Ahab's family. Now think about that. He has been charged by God to eradicate the family of Ahab, but in the end, he is called by God to account for the way he goes about doing what God has charged him with doing. And it is gruesome at certain points. Jezebel is thrown out of a, a window. Her body is broken to pieces. He goes inside and has a meal while Jezebel lies dead in the street when they come out the dogs have consumed her body only her hands and her feet remain it's really a gruesome thing and, and and much of jehu's eradication of ahab's family is like that here's the point it it the ends as believers the ends never justify the means here you have a governing authority that has been commissioned by god to wield the sword in judgment but there remains a responsibility within the context of that calling. It, it matters not only where we get as followers of Jesus, but how we get there along the way. The better text for teaching this concept is the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. I know I made several references to that recently. But what the devil really entices Jesus to do there 
is to take shortcuts to getting where Jesus deserves to be in the end. To have food for himself, to have the worship of the people, to enjoy authority over all the world. These are things that are rightfully Jesus's. But he rejects, he rejects the temptation to take shortcuts at getting where he wants to go. Much of the sin that will entice you as followers of Christ will be sins that suggest that somehow you can take a shortcut to getting where God intends for you to be in the end. And, and shortcuts in the kingdom are almost always enticements that are born forth from the pit of hell itself. Be faithful not only to do what God has called you to do, but to do what God has called you to do with integrity and with honesty and with faithfulness to the word of God at every step along the way. There's a fifth significant event. I'll just mention this one briefly. Uh, Jehoash, who is a king of Judah, um, comes to be king as a boy. He's a boy king. He's only seven years old when he becomes king in chapter 12. And he's described as, as, um, as a thing that churches used to do. I haven't heard of a church doing this in a long time. I don't know any church in this area. Someone poke fun at this, and I'm not poking fun at anybody or anything. But I guess I kind of am. Jehoash wants to fix the temple. And to fix the temple, you need some resources. You need money to fix the temple. So Jehoash has a chest built, and the people are to come by and put their money in the chest, and then that money is unlocked by trusted people, and it's, it's invested into the refurbishment of, of the temple. It, it needed to be uh, reworked in, in many ways. And so it used to be, 50 years ago, churches, when they were doing fundraising or capital campaigns, especially for building projects, they would do a chest of, uh, of Joash. The funny thing to me ab about that, and, and it's happened more recently than that, is that the reason Joash did the chest is because the, the priests were, were so shady, if he didn't lock it in the box, they'd steal it before it ever got to the refurbishment project. So I always think about that and laugh a little bit when I think about the chest of Joash and this special way of receiving an offering. But in general, Joash was a good and, and faithful king. Let's skip over Hezekiah's reign because our time is almost over and, and think for a moment about Josiah. Turn over to chapter 22. Josiah was a boy king like Joash, um, but he was a king with great spiritual wisdom. Josiah led the people of Judah very well, and much of his leadership can be attributed to his faithfulness to the Word of God. The, the thing that sets Josiah's leadership apart from all other kings in Judah is the discovery of the book of the law during his time. Yes, this is how bad things were in Judah. They lost the Bible. They, they, they literally did not know where the Bible was. They, they'd forgotten all about the Bible in general. In chapter 22 and verse 8, they're, they're, they're going about uh, some work in the temple, and the Bible says, Hilkiah the high priest told Shaphan the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan who read it. And Shaphan the court secretary went to the king and reported it. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the temple and have put it into the hand of those doing the work. Those who oversee the Lord's temple... Then Shaphan, the court secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, uh, has given me the book, or a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He commanded Hilkiah, the priest, 
Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people, and all Judah, about the instruction in this book that's been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in, in order to do everything written in them. Josiah finds the book, Josiah reads the book, and Josiah responds to the book. I think personally that the book that's made reference to is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the book of the law in general as it's described here. But their response to what they're reading in the Bible coheres perfectly with what you find in the book of Deuteronomy. Back in our Deuteronomy overview, which I'm sure you don't remember by now, we looked at chapters 28 through 31, which talk about... Um, it talks about renewing the covenant. Remember, we, we talked briefly about a, a recipe, so to speak, for revival or renewing this covenant. Moses said, with every generation, there needs to be a renewed commitment to the covenant. Here's how you do it. In the chapters following, in fact, in chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, there's a covenant renewal ceremony according to what was prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, there's, there seems to be um, a revival of interest in Deuteronomy and what God has required of them. I need to go really, really fast. So the close of the book closes in spite of tremendous disaster on a really, really high note. Josiah is the last good king in the history of Judah as a nation. He is followed by five bad kings. And those five bad kings send the nation of Judah circling the drain. Things get worse, and then they get worse, and then they get worse. You have Jehoiakim who leads the nation of Judah, and he's rotten. And then you have Joachim who leads the nation of Judah and he's even more rotten than the one before him. And the army of Babylon comes in and they take away Jehoachim. And for a moment while we're reading, if we just completely wipe our memory of anything that we have here, we forget about Jehoachim. He's off in Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar sends uh, a king to stand in his place. He sort of appoints or is involved in the appointment of Zedekiah, and then Zedekiah is replaced by Gedaliah, and then there's a rebellion against Babylon, and they come in and they completely destroy the place, and they carry the nation of Judah into exile in Babylon. And it seems as though all hope is lost. And it seems as though all hope is lost because there no longer remains a king in the line of David. In fact, there, it seems that there no longer remains a man in the line of David. And then we come to chapter 25, verse number 27. And the Bible says in the close of our book, on the 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year of the exile of Judas, King Jehoiachin, the one we'd forgotten about, who was carried away captive who is even now two kings ago. At, at, at a particular time, the king of Babylon, who had exiled Jehoiachin in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he pardoned King Jehoiachin of Judah and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and, and set his throne over the thrones of kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and he dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. When it's all said and done, as our, as our picture book fades to black, there's a king 
in the line of David. Displaced, albeit, but there remains the hope that in the end God would be faithful to keep His promise. Aren't you glad for the faithfulness of God? We, we at last, in Jesus, have the King we had always needed. A good and faithful King, perfect in His righteousness, who always works for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. Praise be the name of Jesus.